Stay hungry, stay foolish. In a world of incessant change, we are all threatened by VUCA. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity at a personal and organizational level. Today's book offers a new lens through which to see change as an opportunity rather than an obstacle. While we cannot see into the future, there are repeatable patterns that we can understand. The first step to becoming undisruptible is to realize that evolution is a natural part of life and nature provides many examples. If you haven't guessed it already, that is the blurb for my new book, Undisruptible. And thanks to so many emails from you, from our listeners, from our audience, and from previous guests, with suggestions that I have a guest host on the show, I've eventually conceded. And it is my great pleasure to welcome friend of the innovation show, and personal friend who's had a great impact on my career and my thinking, and indeed in writing the book, including her fantastic feedback that you'll hear about on today's show. It is a great pleasure to welcome Whitney Johnson interviewing me on my book, Undisruptible, A Mindset of Permanent Reinvention for Individuals, Organizations, and Life. Whitney Johnson, welcome to the show. So Aiden, you have just written a book called Undisruptible, which of course I love the title. Tell us uh, why you wrote the book and what's the big idea? I have been so fortunate with my own show, as you know, Whitney, and meeting great guests like you, having them on the show. And I've always treated it as a learning opportunity. So I read the book, as you know, and then I ask questions that are considered and kind of marinate over a week before I actually have that opportunity to do the interview. And through all that information that I was taking in, I also have a real interest in evolution. And I mean, from a biological sense, and you know, nature, etc. And those two things, like we talk about innovation, innovation happens in the intersections. So in the intersections of my mind, these metaphors emerged that we're able to make sense of some of these great frameworks that you talk about that other great innovation writers talk about. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to find a very accessible way people could tap into metaphors of nature and nat natural phenomenon to actually see change is natural. But yes, you'll hit resistance and that's natural too. Mm. Okay, so and there are some great metaphors. And I'm super excited for people to hear about what those are. Um, before we do that, though, I want to set the set the groundwork, you and I are both really big fans of the S curve that was popularized by E.M. Rogers. And then um, I, I know you've studied it sort of different paths. I came to it by Clayton Christensen. So I would love to hear your journey to the S curve. How did you discover it? And how did it capture your imagination? I first actually discovered it through, uh, people would call it a failure in my life in that I, I went in as head of an innovation team, head of an innovation in a national broadcaster. And I realized when I got there that I, I didn't have the frameworks. I didn't have the knowledge and the mental models to be able to even frame change. So that really emerged for me. And I left there after only eight months. But the gift that experience gave me was this show, but also really understanding resistance and understanding to have empathy for the other side who's resisting you. And from there, I worked in an innovation consultancy. And that's when we met because I went over to New York and set up a company over there, set up an office in New York. And you 
knew about that and kindly welcomed me to your chapter in New York, which was fantastic. And just uh, a hat tip to you, Whitney, for that as well, because it was very valuable. And in that innovation company, we used the S-curve. And then after meeting you, I realized it was a huge part of your work because it had dawned on me that once you get this S-curve lens, you see it everywhere and you can use it as a as a great framework to frame any phenomenon, including learning, including jumping from one curve to another from, from a business perspective, and including any aspect of life, even nature. I map it a lot to nature and go, these curves are absolutely natural. I'll give you an example. My, my latest article I wrote, Whitney, was on hydrangeas. One of my neighbors commented around wintertime that my hydrangeas are dead and I needed to change them. And I said, no, no, you need to leave the, the withered bloom on the hydrangea because it protects the emerging bud. And I thought about that as an S-curve in that the emergent is coming behind the, the, the growth, the, the mature. And that is a handing of the baton from the past to the future. Okay, wait, hold on just a second. So as you notice, I have my fingers right behind. <laughs> and they're real. That's not a background. They're real. So here's the question for you. So what you're saying is I had a plant that had a bunch of dead hydrangeas on there and I should I should cut, I shouldn't cut them off. Is that what you're saying? If they're outside, you need to leave the, yeah. the withered bloom on because it protects the emergent bloom from harsh winter conditions. And most people chop them off because they're unsightly, but actually they're still serving uh -huh. a purpose. And I thought about that from a business perspective. That's the exact same thing that we often think of the legacy organization as the withered bloom, but it's still serving mm -hmm. a huge purpose for the emergent and it, it fuels the emergent. Oh, okay. Now, I'm, I mean, I love hydrangeas and now I'm going to love them even more <laughs> and not cut off the withered blooms. So I want to I want to go back to this eight months that you spent at this consultancy because I think, or actually no, not the consultancy, but when you were doing the innovation at the broadcaster, and you said you did it for eight months and it didn't work, and I think I want to just peel that back a little bit because we all have those experiences where like this is going to work and then it doesn't work, and you said people were really resistant to change. So what's one of the things you observed? that was like, whoa, didn't see that coming, but has ended up being the seed of, of lots of learning for you? Well, one of the things is that you think coming into a role like that, you're excited as hell, you're jumping around the place, this is great, I have a chance to leave a legacy or make a mark on the world in this change project. And then you start finding emergent people who will come forward and be willing to help you. But you'll always get to a point of resistance where I think about it like incremental change, like everybody's okay with that, as long as you use the right language of experimentation, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I discovered was maybe I'll use a metaphor here, because I use this to to introduce introduce the idea of resistance in the book, which is the idea of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. And what happens there is d deep within the DNA, you realize that the phenomenon of resistance is totally predictable. So what happens is when the caterpillar emerges from the shell, its very first act is to turn and eat the egg shell. So its former self is fueling the next, just like the hydrangeas we talked about a moment ago. 
Then the next thing happens is the caterpillar happily goes around eating multiple times its body weight, but also shedding its outer skin because it gets incrementally bigger. And what happens next is this warfare deep within the DNA of the butter caterpillar, because what happens is these cells, beautifully called imaginal cells from the words ima imagination, come online. So they start to resonate a certain frequency. Several of them come online, these packets of cells throughout the caterpillar, and they start to communicate with each other. But they're so foreign and so different from the immune system of the caterpillar that it attacks these cells and often succeeds in killing some of them. But in time, they overpower, they all resonate and they come together and they overpower the caterpillar and they induce the caterpillar to go into this life cycle stage known as the chrysalis, where it hardens its outer skin, becomes the cocoon. And it's in here that the transformation takes place. And this is a signal of the amount of sacrifice that needs to be created by the old to allow the new to come forth. So within the chrysalis, within the cocoon, the caterpillar melts down into this soupy fuel that will fuel the future becoming, which is the caterpillar. And that is extremely difficult. And Nobel laureate and poet, the beautiful Maya Angelou said that we rejoice in the beauty of a butterfly, but rarely take a moment to realize the sacrifice that took place to get there. And that analogy is so apt for what I experienced in the organization where I was an imaginal cell, and I was connecting with other packets of cells. But the corporate immune system was too strong, and it crushed me. And in fact, it, it ejected me. And the biologist, uh, British, Brazilian-born British biologist named Peter Medwar has a beautiful quote. He's, he's the father of transplantation, Whitney, in the body. He's the guy who brought this to light. And he noted one thing about the human mind. He said, the human mind treats a new idea the same way the body does a strange protein. It rejects it. So this rejection, this resistance is absolutely natural. And what I say in the book is, when we come across this resistance, we need to realize it's a milestone and not a millstone. It's a sign that we're just pushing far enough to get trans transformational change. Mm. Mm. It's so good. I sometimes feel like we've had this mind meld because I'm working on my next book and I, I talk about a butterfly in there. Um, totally different topic. And I just, just hearing you talk about this, it's so powerful. I just love it. And I love what you just said, this idea of when you start to encounter that resistance, that means you're you're on the verge, you're on the cusp of something amazing. And I also really appreciate how you took this experience that eight months of um, being a marginal cell, but then getting ejected, and it turned out as an innovator to be your crucible experience, it sounds like. Yeah, it was it was a road to Damascus moment in a way because um, literally I fell off. <laughs> I literally fell off. And, you know, the there's a there's a deep thing about this that I, I have never really talked about when he which is really important is that there's a, a sense of shame about that, where the imaginal cell is rejected. So it feels personal. And that's really important. And it's one of the things that drives me with the innovation show. And I know it drives your work is to make people feel they are imaginal cells, and they're needed. And they're wanted. And there's other people like them out there as well. I think that's such an important part of our work. And 
the other thing that happens is in, in this, this world of rapid change, we need to realize that we're going to fall off more horses or camels on the road to Damascus more often. And we need to become resilient about that and understand that that's natural in a world that's evolving so fast because you're never going to be at a period of expertise for very long. So therefore, like in the S-curve, develop new capabilities before they're needed because when they're needed, you'll be in a different mindset. The mind goes to right. fear. When you're in fear, the blood starts to redirect blood from your brain to your hands for fighting, your feet for flight. So you're literally going to be dumber. You're literally going to make flawed decision making. So jump to the new curve before it's needed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there was that great um, book that was written by um, Paul Nunes um, on jumping the S curve and how they talked about organizations and how organizations survive basically on any metric, any financial metric are those that are able to jump or prepare to jump before they need to jump. All right. I have one other question on this crucible experience that you had before we move on. And that is because I'm fascinated by this idea of when something doesn't work and we're effectively pushed off of an S curve. How long did it take you um, before you could tell the story, narrate the story in a way that you didn't feel shame around it? I'm always fascinated by that. I've been really lucky in a way because, and, and you know, when you look back on these things, they, they don't feel lucky when you're there, the, the contrasts of, of no. evolution. And one of the things that happened was I, when I looked at the, the innovation role experience, I, I realized I didn't have, there, there was a bit of acceptance of my part in this because I was like, I didn't have the frameworks either. So mm -hmm. even if I got to a point of maybe transformation, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to bring it home. I could make incremental changes and I could do it well and I could rally troops, the imaginal cells as they were there. But, but because I realized that, I think it was really useful. And the reason I was, I'm so lucky in my life is that I played professional sport, as you know. And in there, like you're, you can be ridiculed or a hero every week, dependent on how you played. So it gives you a very thick skin about searching for feedback. And I might, I might answer, I might I throw in here now some, when we're talking about feedback to our audience that you were so instrumental in my book. And the idea of accepting feedback for me is so easy because how else are you going to get better? And to tell our audience here, what happened was when I sent out <laughs> my my draft copy of my book for endorsement, Whitney held back for a little while and then came back to me and said, "I'm not I'm not comfortable to endorse this work because you've overlooked minorities and gender in this," and it hit me like a bag of hammers from orbit <laughs> because I was like going, oh my God, here's me talking about bias and talking about being aware of yourself and not making flawed decision making. And then I fall into that exact trap myself. And I realized another part of that, and I don't know if I shared it to you, to you Whitney, was that I was under pressure to finish it. And that mm. pressure made me remove a part that was really important in the jigsaw. But in do in the pressure to deliver, I missed it. And I thought, well, that's exactly what happens in organizations. They're under so much pressure to deliver the quarterly results or monthly, however they're measured, that they'll miss things because they're so much in focus mode that they can't be in a creative mode. Mm -hmm. mm. 
That is so interesting. So you ended up, yeah, like you said, we go to that default behavior of just like, what's what's available to me. So to your credit, and everybody, just so you know, I wrote a newsletter about this. So we'll include that in the show notes of this conversation that we had, because I didn't, I didn't mention this, but now we will. <laughs> Um, and it was such a great experience and, and a true credit to you because when I reached out to you and I said, you know, I had to make that whole decision. Do you say something? Do you not say something? And I finally decided, and I think this is a really important litmus test for all of us is that I, I realized, um, you know, my relationship with you was more important than not, you know, I, I was willing to be uncomfortable, maybe that caterpillar and <laughs> going into the, you know, I was willing to be uncomfortable because the relationship mattered to me. Yeah. And, um, and I was willing to take that risk. And I think what I so appreciated is that, you know, once you take that risk, you don't know how someone's going to respond. I mean, you could have been really angry. You could have, you could have gaslighted me. You could have done all sorts of things, right? And you did none of that. You did exactly what you just said your training would indicate you would do as an athlete, which is you take the feedback. Thank you very much. You observe, you iterate, and you move forward. And as a consequence, what I think is lovely is that our, our professional relationship was enhanced. It improved because we had that interchange. I think that's one of the key points, Whitney, is that we're, we're, many people don't give feedback because they don't want any back. They don't want to receive the, the other side. And the other thing is that that importance thing, it's, it's almost, it's, it's like a, on a spectrum of post-traumatic growth, it's down one spectrum where it's like, my trust in you deepened. And it's those moments where somebody risks something for your better good. And, you know, you have to accept that because it's a gesture that's unusual and it's rare and it's really appreciated. Mm. Mm. Lovely. Okay. So everybody, you're hearing real time what happens when you take the risk and you are willing to give and receive feedback. So now I want to go. One of your really super interesting insights in the book is thinking about the S curve as an infinity curve. And I see you've got this little lapel pen that, that. <laughs> tell us tell us about it through your work through clayton's work through roger's work were, were the main bodies of places i i saw that work and i want to reference that as well in the book because i i actually didn't do a great job of references and uh whitney's work was extremely you know another gap for me people are like going what is this book it's full of gaps so anyway so one of the say, things I, when you say Roger, are you saying Roger Martin? Uh, sorry, E.M. Rogers. Oh, E.M. Rogers. Okay, so E.M. Rogers. Yeah. Christians. Okay, got it. Just, just clarify. Exactly. Yeah, diffusion yeah. of innovations for the win. Can you see it? Can you see it there? No, I can't see it. No, I can't see it. Hold All right. it up. Anyway, so yeah, diffusion of innovations, no. br brilliant stuff. Hold like on. really. I'll, I'll hold the mine up. Just, <laughs> just so everybody can see. Diffusion of innovations, the textbook. Okay, go ahead. There we go. There we go. Twins. There we go. Twins. <laughs> <laughs> okay, keep going. So, so anyway, just absolutely, the S curve makes absolute sense to me. And what happened was, I was, I was preparing presentations and workshops and writing, etc., like you do doing keynotes. And I was I was doing the S curve. I, I, I make a big effort to make my own slides and mm. get beautiful graphics created for them. And I made the S curve. And 
I noticed over a period of time, like, so I was jumping from one S curve. And just for our audience that don't know, it's just the shape of an S. This one's kind of stretched a little bit, uh, like um, half, an, half an eight, uh, almost cut diagonally. So the figure eight on its side. So what happened was I one night had this dream. I have this practice of for any new ideas I have or ideas for writing, I have an email address that I specifically send ideas to. And if it's to do with a book idea, that's so I have several book ideas, if it's to do with a specific book idea, and I even have chapters, I'll put that in the subject line and go, this is useful for this. And over time, it's like throwing a load of, re- you know, ingredients into a recipe, and then eventually something will bake from there. Yeah. So, th- so one of the things that happened with that was, I, during the book, as you know, you know, you're marinating on your thoughts all the time, it can be you're waking up at three or four, it happens quite often. And one of these moments was, I had this dream. And it was, um, it was this, if you think of a kind of reptilian scene, where there was it looked like a snake uh, slithering around. And it was actually the snake slithering around in the shape of an eight on its side, the infinity curve. Mm-hmm. And it was swallowing its own tail. And I, I had sent myself an email going snake swallowing own tail. That was it. A few days later, checked that email address. And first thing I do, like you would, is Google that. What the heck did that mean? Was it some type of omen or because it, it seemed scary? It seemed like an evil pre- presence in some way because that's what we associate the snake with. But I discovered then, not only was it not that, it was this ancient symbol of reinvention. And what it was is called the Ouroboros, which is a snake swallowing its own tail. Carl Jung talks about it, it's throughout psychology and this idea of rebirth and using what I interpreted as is using your former self as fuel for the next self. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was with the S curve, if I continued on the S and doubled it back on itself, like a snake eating its own tail, it became an infinity symbol. I was like, yes, there's the concept. And you just love when those things come together. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. All right. So you, you started to, you just mentioned Carl Jung and you had a quote. I'm going to read it really quickly. The greater the contrast, the greater the potential. Great energy only comes from a correspondingly great tension of opposites. Can you tell us a story, a personal story of managing contrasts? It happened to me in my my rugby career, for example. So just to give a little bit of context is that this concept came to me through giving my kids a bath. So the poor guys, I, and I dedicate the book to my wife and kids for listening to my stories all the time. And and actually, what I didn't realize what I was doing was making sure that a kid would understand them. That mm. that was the goal, really, when I look back on it. Maybe I'm conflabulating a bit there. But that's what I what I think. And your kid and how old are your kids? Like six? So, eight? so now, yeah, so now 11 and seven, but then okay. probably a bit younger, maybe six and whatever two two or three yeah, okay. so they don't let me give them baths anymore put it that way so so if you if you picture this where i'm i'm in my you know coming home from work sleeve up on one knee and i start to feel the temperature of the bath and i swoosh it left and right and i notice the the wave that is created and the corresponding trough and 
one of my kids had had an incident in school and I called them in and I said, guys, come in here. I want to show you something. And they look at me, part tolerance, part curiosity to dad telling another story. So anyway, I, I do with this the bath and I go, look at the bath, see the way the wave is up and down at the same time. They understand. I then say, this is where it probably doesn't make so much sense to a kid. That's like that body of water is one body of water. It's like life. And there's mm. highs and lows at the same time. And the goal is to enjoy the highs, but manage the lows. Because when you're in a low, you can always be confident there's another high coming. And when you're in a high, you can always be wary that you're not going to be there forever. So enjoy it and prepare for the next low. Mm. And they have internalized that because when you ask them about stuff that they talk about the t trough and the crest of the wave. And what happened was a few weeks later, my older son fell off a trampoline, broke his arm. I came home. Are you OK? He said, yeah, I'm just managing the trough of a wave. And for, for me, weeks later, I'd said that and I didn't think it even I didn't even think I, I saw his eyes glazed over. Wow. Uh, but but the beautiful reaction was my younger son who says, he was staring at the bath and I was like, he's really getting this. He's really into it. And then he says, will you put me in there and do that? <laughs> so, then I, so he just goes on this little Disneyland ride in the bath. But but um, what I found, Whitney, was think of the S curve again, the eight. There's mm -hmm. a trough and a crest. And mm -hmm. the problem about being in the crest is it's like that beautiful Buckminster Fuller quote that says there's nothing in a butter in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. So it's very hard to see the the potential when you're at the bottom of an S curve. And mm -hmm. that gives me great empathy towards the legacy or crystallized or existing butterfly organization, because it looks on a caterpillar, and it's like, there's nothing in that. There's no profit, it's ugly, all these kind of things. And that is so often the challenge. And that happened to me in my career. Like I say in the book, you asked me about my own personal one. And yeah. it happens all the time. Everything's in cycles. In, in careers, when you move, it's very rare players are really successful everywhere they go. And, and part of my mission in playing was actually to use it as a passport to experience the world. And mm. what I found was it, in one of my worst moments, I... I get offered this, con I, I got offered a continuing contract. I wasn't picked in the team, had a falling out with the coach and had injury after injury and just had this miserable period of time. But I, I decided to revisit the goals I'd made. And at this stage, I was 28 and I'd made goals when I was 21. One of them was to play in France and in particular for okay. this club to lose. Yeah, back, back up for just a second. So yeah. give us a little bit more detail. So you're 21 years old, you make a goal, just give okay. us back. Okay. Make a goal. I mean, okay. like, I know the story, but I, our listeners are like, give me some context. So you're 21, you make a goal to do what? Okay, because it, I'm actually doing the cardinal sin of innovation where it's like, the vision's <laughs> here and a load of stuff happens here and then this comes out. So okay. yeah, yeah, good call. Okay, so, the, <laughs> so, okay, so I was a very late uh, bloomer in sport. I was uh, often last picked on the, on the, in the playground as a kid if I wasn't I was put on the other team so they'd lose and I mean that's probably where the seed of resilience started but I didn't even I never saw it that way I never saw it as poor me or anything like that mm. it was just I can do this and 
when I was around 16, I played on a, kind of a, a, a team in the school that was kind of a misfits team, but I ended up being captain. I enjoyed the responsibility. I started playing well. And then what happened was that summer, I decided to train and give this a go. So I did that. And I went to did my exercise, all that kind of stuff, trained really hard, came back the next year, really strong, got into the team, had a, a stellar season, and then ended up getting onto the the professional team's junior system. And what mm. happened was then I got I, I, am, I was the last name on that team sheet, I know, because the coach told me. But then they brought me into the Irish Academy, which is these budding future international players and brought me in there. And again, because of this appetite to learn and desire for feedback and growth, I worked harder than, than most. And I did everything. I didn't drink. I slept. I, I meditated. Everything I could do, I did. And, and fast forward, I'll fast forward a little bit then. When I was in college studying French and German, I, my French needed a bit of work. And one of my classmates recognized this. And he gave me an article in a newspaper. And it said Dax en crise, which means Dax in crisis. Dax is a town in the southwest of France. And it was about this club that had been devastated by a loss of all their best players to other clubs who offered more money. And being a light bulb goes off, opportunity. First article I ever read, Whitney. So just to put that into context. So I then pull on whatever levers I have available including finding first out who else had ever played from Ireland in France. And there had only been a couple of players. So mm -hmm. as luck would have it, one of those players was my former coach in the team I was playing for. Got in touch with him. He wrote to that club and I went over and negotiated a contract. So I made my Erasmus year into a year where I got my first contract. And then from then, I saw this team Toulouse play. And Toulouse were, at the time, the kings of Europe, the best club in Europe, and are nearly there again at the moment. They're back at this peak, as peaks and troughs go. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote down my visions, and one of them was to play for the club I did play for for a long time, Leinster, and then play for Ireland. And then if I wasn't a regular in the Irish team, a fallback plan was to travel and go and play for Toulouse. And, and then two years in London. So the trough then that manifested for me was during the period in Leinster where I had played for Ireland, so I'd achieved them, I'd lost sight of those goals. So the trough mm -hmm. made me look again. And that term that there's always assets in the ashes is is mm -hmm. very poignant and, and, and pure to me. I love that concept where the idea of the phoenix that it, it willingly burns itself up every 500 years and from the ashes takes what's still useful. That, I think that's a really nice mental model. So in those ashes, in the contrast, in the trough, I pick up the pieces there that are, oh my God, my vision. So that prompts me then to get in touch with France through an agent. And as luck would have it, the only club that offered me the contract was Toulouse. And I went there and had just a most wonderful time. And that was such a special moment, Whitney, because of the vision and because mm -hmm. of those moments that we don't ever enjoy the the crest of the wave and go i i did it like that thing mm -hmm. when i when i was a caterpillar and, and now i'm going to enjoy this moment of butterfly and by the way i didn't do it and i still probably haven't done it properly and it's so important for innovators and change makers to look back on the successes you've had in getting there because there are it's littered with successes that we don't often yeah. celebrate but it's not litter it's something to save right exactly <laughs> okay
All right. So, so Toulouse was that, uh, so the, the trough, what led to the trough? What had happened? I feel there was a couple of things. One, I'm a huge believer in the, the law of vibration in that what you give out, you get back. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I believe, you know, people radiate on a similar energy. And we even talk about that language. They're on the same vibe as me, or I love the vibe yeah. in that coffee shop. And it, that's actually what you're talking about is energy. And, you know, right. even us connecting and the crew, your New York crew, respect to them if they're listening, is uh -huh. their imaginal cells radiating or resonating on the same frequency. And mm -hmm. I, I actually believe that when you sometimes get stuck in the trough, you start resonating the wrong frequency. And it's just like the bat, you know, on a radio, an old radio tuning it in. I'm, tun I'm giving out this mixed, angry, resentful frequency and then i attract back those things so i end up getting stuck in that loop which happens all of us and it, and it's okay but I, what i hope with this metaphor is that it goes look you need to change that frequency by having a vision and revisiting on a regular basis and the world moves for you, the universe moves for you and they seem mm -hmm. like coincidences that's why i emphasize that as luck would have it i i truly believe in that synchronicity that when you have the belief, you revisit it all the time, and then you do the work that mm -hmm. the, 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 the sea can open for you, the Red Sea can open it, yeah. and you can get to that vision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's, so, so you're, you're in the, the trough period, you're not, uh, did you lose your contract, or you just weren't playing well, or? Here was the thing, here was the way more difficult thing, because often those okay. times of crisis are, are great to give you a little shove. But what happened was I actually got offered a contract, which made it even more difficult because mm -hmm. then I had a fallback plan and mm -hmm. I, I opted for no safety. And, you know, it's one of the things we talk a lot about is that becoming comfortable with uncomfort, discomfort yeah. Yeah. is so important. Yeah. So, yeah. so I decided to go for that. And, and by once in a lifetime opportunity, there's only two players, Irish players who ever played for that team. And it's, I was talking to the guy who recruited me, you know, writing the book, as you know, is so transformational for you personally as yeah. well. Yeah. And yeah. I looked back on that. And I said, that guy was look, he, he was scouting me for a few years, I, I owe him a call. And I mm. rang him out of the blue. He was like, what the you know, surprised that I got in touch because it's been 12 more years. And mm -hmm. rang him, I just said, Listen, I just want to say thank you because it mm -hmm. was such an important part of my life. And I've written this mm -hmm. book and it's given me a time to reflect. And I just want to yeah. say thanks. And I think that's so important because imagine somebody you do that for. And you know, it's one thing I'd ask yeah. our people to consider to listening to the show yeah. is you can change somebody's life. You can actually give mm -hmm. them a new lens. They could be going, I was just about to give up on people. And then mm -hmm. something like that happens. I think it's right. such a small but beautiful gesture we can all m make. Yeah. Absolutely. Saying that, th saying the thank you. You know, one thing you said that was interesting, we just had Bob Proctor on the podcast. Not oh, too long great. Ago, and, he's, and he talked about, you know, this idea of, you know, the secret, it's not just you intend something or have an idea like you, you do, you figure out what you want your life to be, but then you do the work, you dedicate your life to making it happen. And he said, you know, that's where people get the secret wrong is that they, they have this idea, but then they don't do the work and it's a both. And 
you imagine it, you get in the vibration. Here's what I think can happen. Here's what I want to happen. Here's what I believe can happen. But then you work and you work and you work and you work to make it happen. And that's what I hear you saying is what you did as a rugby player. Absolutely. And the, you know, the crisis moments, you know, in the book, we, we talk about because you inspired me to get it back in there was Josephine Garris Cochran, who invented mm -hmm. the dishwasher. Uh, mm -hmm. That lady was a socialite. Her husband was a socialite. They'd, they, they, she thought they were extremely wealthy because the the husband managed all their finances in those days or didn't, as she was soon to find out, because he died suddenly. She finds out he's, she's inherited debt. She has two choices in that world. In the 1800s, two choices is either to go and live as a widower or find mm -hmm. another man, which was seen as shameful at the time, right. which is right. shameful for us as humans, but things have moved on, thankfully, hopefully. And the other thing is that she, she was faced with this crisis, and the crisis pushed her. And one of the great metaphors I, I love is there's this great story of the king who inherits these two falcons. And the falcons are brought back to the palace, and they're placed on a perch. And one of them flies around like very happily, and the other does, doesn't. And he's like, bring me the best people in the world, the best ornithologists, let's get this eagle down. And the eagle doesn't budge, the falcon doesn't budge. And in time, then he goes, send for somebody who knows what to do. And a farmer comes along. And the next morning, the king comes down and sees the fal two falcons flying around beautifully around. He's like, bring me the, the creator of this great deed. And forward comes the lowly farmer with his hand in his, his hat in his hand. And with a bowed head, the, the king says to him, what did you do? Tell me of the magic you used. And he's like, and he looks up and he says, I just cut the branch. And I love that as a metaphor that sometimes life cuts the branch for us because, and, mm -hmm. and this is going to happen to a lot of us in this period of disruption. And mm -hmm. if we can expect that, and, and m way more importantly than that, not be a, a doomsayer and know that this trough is coming, but prepare for mm -hmm. it. And I don't mean in a paranoid sense, but build capabilities yeah. that you currently have the cognitive capacity to do so and make decisions based on the sacrifices you're willing to make or not. And one of the great terms I have in my head, and I don't know where it came from, is would you rather live with the pain of discipline or the pain of regret? And mm -hmm. I just think the the fleeting nature of life is, is so fast, and it's getting faster, and, and it is getting faster because of technology, yeah. that mm -hmm. we need to make mm -hmm. those decisions because it will be gone in the flash. And there is so yeah. much joy to be had I love that. Cut the branch. Um, all right. So you talk. Um, so here's a question for you. Um, what do you want to do next? I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want to talk about the coconut trap and your decision to retire from rugby or or we can do an and um, Walt Disney because you've plotted his life on an S curve and tell us more. Which would you like to where would you like to go next? I, th I think It'd be nice to do the coconut trap. Are we are we recording this piece or is this editable? editable? No, we're recording it. Okay, go for it. So yeah, yeah so yeah. no, I think the coconut trap, Whitney, is is uh, okay. will, will be it. more. It will resonate with more of our audience, I think. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So great, you've had Bob Proctor okay. on, by the way. I'm looking forward to hearing that yeah. one. Oh yeah, he's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, he. Yeah. So okay, so coconut trap. What is it? Tell us about the coconut trap. Okay, it's it's another analogy, another metaphor where I discovered this beautiful story where 
the the in a in an age where indigenous tribes could catch monkeys, they used this ingenious way to do so. And what they would do is find a coconut or a gourd, like a butternut squash, are called gourds, mm -hmm. and they'd hollow out just a small hole in in the top of it, enough for a monkey's hand to pass through. And they'd stuff the coconut with bananas or whatever fruit would attract the monkeys and hang them on a tree that monkeys would frequent. In time, the monkeys would smell the fruit, come forth to investigate, curious to see what it is. And they'd naturally squeeze the hand in to grab the fruit. But when they grasped the fruit, they'd create a fist. And with the fist, they could no longer remove their hand from the small hole. Even when they saw their potential captors coming to take them, even when it could spell certain death, they still held on. And the question I ask us here is what are we all holding on to? Because this goes beyond personal vendettas, grudges that we all have had. This goes right back to holding on to personas we've created over decades. And one of the ones I talk about there, Whitney, is one of the most difficult things in sport is letting go of that persona that you were because it's a short-lived life. It's a very short-lived life and can be made shorter through injury. And for example, in the US, NFL players, American football players, they retire on an average salary of two to $3 million, but within a few years, a large majority have gone bankrupt. And they struggle to let go of the way they used to live life, the person they used to be, the fame they used to enjoy. And I argue that we all do that in some respect. It's difficult when you're an empty nester and your kids leave, you try to cling on to them to keep them on as much as possible. And likewise, in life, we cling on to mental models that no longer serve us. One of those I talk about was that coach that, that I had the falling out with, I, I had a long-term holding on to that that in my consciousness somewhere. And mm. our, con our cognitive capacity is only so much. And what I think about is often minimalism. And we need to minimalize that baggage that we have, that, carry, that, that unnecessary baggage, whether it's mental models and how we see the world, skill sets, capabilities, or else business models. And I didn't really make a big deal of saying this in the book, Whitney, but bring, seeing as we've framed this with S-curves and your great work and Clayton's work and Roger's work, is think about it from one S-curve jump to the other. And the mature S-curve, the tip of the former curve is clinging to the emergent one, holding it back. And it's this organizational baggage and desire to for the status quo. And that goes through every aspect of our lives. And it's something I really wanted to reflect on and bring to life and hopefully through all the analogies and the stories that that can happen for people. Yeah, I, love oh, I love your analogies. So, so, so what was the coconut trap for you when it came to retiring? It was this moment of, of this kind of anger I held on to for feeling of feelings of underachievement. And what, mm. what, what happened was, you know, we talk a lot about reframing being so important. I, I, I had done extremely well. I was an average athlete. I just worked really hard. And I, I, want, I know that, but you've got to think about the starting point. You know, I know I, I did really well 
but I never gave myself the yeah. credit for that because the other thing is my starting point was way lower than some really talented people. And often the talented, the most talented don't get to the top and they can. And I think with a little bit of reframing of things, you can see things differently. And for me, what I saw when I looked back was actually for for that talent set you had, you did extremely well, but it's given you so much. And I, I really believe by letting go to that piece of poisoned rotten fruit that was using up some cognitive capacity that this book emerged from there a new kind of idea of what to create for the future emerged from there because i had the mental capacity to do so okay so aiden you haven't told us what the story is with the coach oh. you're burying the lead oh the actual That's story, the story no, well, well, okay yes. okay so here, here's a good way to my hand in the coconut and I want to pull it out. <laughs> okay. So what what happened was actually, so you know, on um, the idea of, of one of a leadership trait might be fairness or autonomy. So I, I'm high on both <laughs> fairness and autonomy. And yeah. what, what, what that means is it's not just about, oh, that's not fair to me. But if uh -huh. I see uh -huh. Whitney or somebody else being treated unfairly, I have to speak up about it. It's just a drive inside yeah. you to do so. And I'm I'm very much like that. And it's probably why, you know, if I felt I was unfair in attribution in the book or, or fair, you know, uh, diversity in the book, I had to fix it. it it's a drive. Yeah. And what happened was we had gone through a period in this in this team where the coach was he'd picked it, picked the second tier players. And I was captain of the way. So my my status was quite good at the time. And when the other more senior players came back from international duty, he just picked them en masse without consulting the younger guys who'd done really well. And my fairness gene kicks in and I go forth and I say this to him. I think, can I get a meeting? Can I have a chat? Probably might have done better with the communication of that. I don't remember. But I, when I think back the the story was i i said i think this is really unfair i think it sends a really bad message why would you try when this is just going to happen every time we'll end up everybody leaving the club and that that did happen by the way including me that year but from then on i didn't get picked and i was i was riding high i was player of the month captain had uh, been brought back into the irish setup so i was in a really good place and i thought it was a meritocracy where you could say things. And that probably element of unfairness mm -hmm. is probably driving mm -hmm. me in my work as well, in my daily work to try and mm -hmm. teach leaders or organizations about these concepts that they can make wow. more important decisions. Wow. That is fascinating. So basically, from a political and social capital standpoint, you had a lot of it, you know, relatively speaking, something happens, you're like, this isn't fair. And you say something, thinking it's psychologically safe, or even if it's not, you're going to be protected. But you basically get blackballed. <laughs> exactly. I learned Amy Edmondson's great work through scar yeah. tissue. And then I read about it later on. Exactly. And so, so that's fascinating. So that's another crucible experience for you of that importance of making it safe for people to speak up. And then as you said, the importance, and now I understand where the coconut trap comes in, is you were holding on to this, this isn't fair, this isn't fair, what are you going to do with this? And finally, you had to let it go, and then pull your hand out and move forward. Absolutely. Right? And, and I have this very small practice to tell you as well, I, I try and meet anybody I have that 
little bit of residue with from the past that I might just, mm. it's the type of person you'll see and your, your amygdala will just fire for a second. Those people who yeah. come to mind, uh, the list is getting shorter, but I meet them and just sit with them and have breakfast and just catch up and wish them well. The most important part of that meeting is the end to wish them well. And I visualize it as letting go of pieces of old fruit or baggage that's, you know, using up some valuable part of my cognitive capacity. Do they know that you feel that way about them? <laughs> <laughs> no, my 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 RSVPs would be very minimal then. People would be like, <laughs> I don't know this, if I uh... want to have lunch with Aiden. Is he going to pull out a banana? Is it cherries? Is it coconuts? Okay, Two coconuts, please. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's funny. Um, okay. All right. So tell us, um, what are some of the personal S curves that you're on right now? And and I guess another follow-on question is, how do you know when it's time for you to do something new? Like, how do you, how does it feel to you? What does it look like? Okay, great. So let, let's use another analogy here. I don't know if you did that because you're skillful as hell as that, Whitney. I've heard you many times. So the idea of the crab, mm -hmm. the crab curve, right? So, so crabs have exoskeletons. So the 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 shell is on the outside, it doesn't grow with the growth of the crab. So they have to remove the crab, the shell on a regular basis and go into hiding as the new crab, as the new shell grows. And a lot of people don't understand this because you come across a, a crab shell on the beach and you go, Oh, my God, another dead crab, depending on your empathy levels. And what happens is that that's a crab that's often just shed its shell to go and mm. grow a new one. Mm. And what it, it needs to do this, the crab needs to do this because it gets painful and it's scratchy and it's like, oh, this just doesn't feel right. And I, I think about that feeling mm -hmm. that we all hit that when we're at the top of a curve, but also back to the idea of the imaginal cell, something in us, deep within us, like the imaginal cell in a caterpillar starts to resonate and go, it's time for a change there. Yeah. It's time to go through it again. And I think that's absolutely natural. And the world is starting to, the environment is starting to become more acceptable of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important that the organism can't be thought of independent as from its environment because mm -hmm. they're transactional. One changes the other. Alan Watts said that beautifully. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we, we actually can get to a point of this constant permanent reinvention because it's people aren't going to look at your CV anymore and go, oh, they've job hopped a lot. A lot. You'll actually be able to go, well, I did that because I, I provided this value and I and I extracted this value, mm -hmm. these new capabilities. Now I've reapplied them differently, right. but I've added in some new ones. Now I'm going to do it again. And, and I intend to leave this or organization maybe in three years if there's no job mobility or opportunity for me to shed the shell and grow a new one. Right. And, you, you know, I, I think that's so important. You asked what was my recent one. My most recent one is taking off the shell. By the way, one of the shells I talked about was on a podcast where you with you a couple of years ago and you said, what do you do? And I said, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> so that that was a shell that was a new kind of mm. you know s curve jump mm -hmm. the natural thing when you when you're finishing is you're thinking about the next one but also i've gone out on my own created my own business edge behavior and that is the new curve it's yeah. the see what new value i can bring there um i started a project called edge school with a, a school here in ireland alexandra college where we 
are looking at edge behaviors to teach kids to to secondary school kids. So these are kids 12 to 18, where we can test new curricula in a safe sandbox environment, use new technology, etc. So they're all new S curve jumps. And without doing them, without doing them, I I know you're the same, it gets itchy, and it gets painful. I love that metaphor, though, the crab and the skin has to come off. So, so you're so you're on a new S curve because you got a book that's about to come out, and 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 from what I read, it's it's a it's a trilogy, so it's one of three books. Um, after you came back from the United States, you were working, and when you were in the United States, you were working for someone else, and it sounds like you've started your own firm, so that's a whole new S curve, and now you're starting this curriculum for schools in Ireland. That's a lot of S curves. You need to have multiple ones. I I often think about it like we say businesses need to diversify, but they need to diversify business models as well as businesses. So it's the same thing because with the rate of change, we saw it with the creative destruction of COVID that some jobs were destroyed, others thrived. So try and spread your bets. Yeah, exactly. The portfolio. Okay. Is there anything that you've got that skin on and it's about time for you to take it off and you need to say it out loud right now? Because then you'll do it faster. I just want to say to people, I know change is really scary, but it's also a bridge to a new future. And rather than being defined of by a, um, a map or a record of the past, we can be defined by visions of the future. And that that sounds tireless. That sounds like you never rest. The joy is in the actual delivery of those things, and then it, the new vision of the next one. And um, I just think that that's one of the messages I want to share is is get out there and go for it. You will meet resistance. It's natural. See it as milestones, not millstones. Oh, I love that. Okay, so your book. Um, people can get it anywhere, right? Amazon, they can go to your website. So how do people find you, basically? You can find me easily on LinkedIn. I'm always there. I like you. I have uh, weekly newsletter blogs, and you can find me on theinnovationshow.io. And the reason I picked that, by the way, is because of meeting great people like you, Whitney. IO stands for input output. Ah, so the input, ah, and then the it's it's like there's a beautiful Edith, Edith Wharton quote. She said that there's two ways to spread the light. One is to be the candle, and the other is to be the mirror. And I see that work as mirror work, that mirroring great people. So thank you. So good. All right. So um, two final questions. One thing that I like to do in my coaching is at the very end of a conversation is to ask people what was useful to them. And the reason for that is that then your brain can prime and tag, you know, what was useful. And you've, I've been asking you lots of questions. Um, and so there's a lot that's useful for me, but the question for you is, as you've been talking or listening and processing, what in your brain are you sort of like, huh, okay, that was useful for me. I hadn't thought of that, or I wanted, I want to double click on that. What comes to mind? It genuinely dawned on me there that the, the fairness element that I experienced in that experience with the coach, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that as the coconut trap. The, I, I thought about the pain in it, in that my anger towards him, but not the fairness element. And that, because that fairness element has come with me, it, it, I don't think it goes very easily. So it probably intensified that. And, you know, when you talk about 
organizations and change. There's a lot of that happens where people get gaslit, like you said, they're gaslighted or they're ostracized or bullied. And, you know, that's just that's part of the role of change, I think, is to understand that that's part of it. And you need to have the resilience to both expect it. And I think expecting it makes it easier to experience it when you when you know it's coming. Right, right. Okay, so so what you're saying is that you had thought about the coconut trap in terms of the resentment, but you hadn't thought about it in terms of the fairness piece and, and that also being a crucible experience for you. Yeah, brilliant. Mm, love yeah. it. Okay, any final thoughts? Go for it. There's, you know, <laughs> for people, like even, you know, start, I, I always say to people, start small, like I do mm -hmm. coaching and thought leader, leadership writing and mm. people have ideas, but but... Yeah. Until they activate that part of the brain, the RAS, the reticular activating system in the base of your brain, that is like this sniffer dog for whatever you tell it to look for, like gratitude or, you know, law of vibration, like Bob Proctor talks about. It's the mm -hmm. same thing. You turn that on sniffing for something for you in the future, even with writing and metaphors will emerge, instances will emerge because you'll be aware the filter is turned on for them. And I just want to say to our audience, have a vision go for it. It's going to be really hard at the start. It's going to be messy in the middle and it's going to be enjoyable at the top, but don't stop. Go again. And swallow your tail. Aiden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Whitney. And my sincere thanks for your interventions in the book and your vital feedback that was so happily accepted. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. 